0: so much for that lovely introduction um, So, and thank you all for um, inviting me to speak today I'm happy to share some of our work with you um, so I'm gonna oops, let's see. I'll tell you about a few different projects today so we'll start with kind of our efforts in the ED and kind of our chronology of doing sepsis work there over the last five years including some of our um, QI work and data infrastructure um, and kind of how we came to our current vital sign based alert Um, And then we'll talk about using additional um, things to recognize sepsis, including labs, like typical things that we send in the ED, white blood cell count, procalcitonin, and lactate. And then we'll talk about some of our novel biomarker work as well. Um, And then can talk some about our participation in IPSO, the same collaborative that you guys are part of, um, as well as our new pediatric sepsis program slash Center for Sepsis Excellence. All right, so I'm gonna start with the case. This is actually the patient that turned me into a sepsis researcher. Um, so my, in residency, um, I did a year of urgent care in between residency and fellowship, and this patient came um, on an overnight shift. Uh, so he was a 10-year-old boy with fever for a day and an episode of vomiting, was initially febrile and tachycardic, but normotensive, um, was triaged as an ESI level four, which is kind of our you know low-level triage urgent care patient, and had gotten some Tylenol in triage. About an hour and a half later, he came to a room, was more febrile and a little more tachycardic, but blood pressure was still normal. Um, we saw him around 11 p.m. Um, and thought he probably had a viral illness, but also considered things like a UTI or pneumonia or strep. Um, he got some oral rehydration therapy and a rapid strep, a UA, and the plan was to reassess him in a bit. Um, a few hours later, he had an increase in abdominal pain and had diffuse petechiae and was now hypotensive um, so at that point he got you know IV bolus antibiotics um, and then he kind of progressed to a fulminant pulmonary edema and hypotension um, was intubated went to the ICU um, and basically arrested and died an hour later um, his blood culture grew strep pneumo and so th- this was a. Incredibly sobering case for many of us. Um, I think we all, as emergency medicine providers, but also as really any pediatrician, lose a lot of sleep over patients like this, um, who are rare, right? So there's there's thousands and thousands of kids who come to us every year with fever. The vast majority of them don't grow strep pneumo in the blood, um, but it's our goal to find the ones that do before um, things like this happen. So we've been interested in sepsis for a long time in the ED at CHOP. We kind of were um, daunted by this whole recognition process in the beginning. Um, and I think felt uh, we, were, we were worried about putting electronic alerts in because we have a very high volume ED and we knew that you know fever and tachycardia were common and we're worried about things like alert fatigue. And so when we started, we said, all right, we're not gonna tackle that yet. First, we're gonna say, can we do better with sepsis when we know, when we, know we have it? Um, so we started out with kind of just a sepsis treatment algorithm and order set um, and kind of alongside with that, decided to build some infrastructure to collect data. And so we built, um, this is kind of before QI, our QI staffing model existed really. Um, and so we built this uh, research database that that extracted data automatically from Epic. Um, and so have kind of a sepsis registry that's now been in place for the last five years. Um, and then I'll show you some of the reasons why we, we kind of use that data to start thinking about recognition. Um, we first started with looking, um, using retrospective data to say, what if we had an alert in place? Would it, How would it function? Um, and then data from that led us to build our current alert Um, that is in place now, Um, and the alert works quite well for us, and so now we're validating it at additional sites, um, are implementing it in a community ED setting, um, and have have started to build this kind of multidisciplinary sepsis program across the hospital. Um, And so, you know, there's been data from us and others that have shown that sepsis bundles improve care both in adults and children, um, that time to antibiotics and time to IV fluids improve patient outcomes, um, improve ICU and hospital length of stay, as well as organ dysfunction in the first few days of, of hospitalization and mortality. And so the 2017 sepsis guidelines came out last summer um, and, are, and recommend that all hospitals have a sepsis bundle and that they have some sort of sepsis recognition system. Um, but we know that the recognition is challenging, right? So like I said, the first patient, for every one of him, there are a million like this, right? Kid who comes to triage, high fever, tachycardic, um, and an hour later he looks like this, right, after some Motrin and a Popsicle. Um, But there are patients like the patient I told you about, or like Roy Staunton, who many of you will recognize from New York State, who's the impetus behind Roy's laws and many of the sepsis recognition legislations around the country. And so this is kind of the model that we like to work off of. So we have lots and lots of kids with fever. In the ED, the vast majority of them will never develop critically ill sepsis, but we'd like to find the ones that do. Um, and we'd like to improve our ability to stratify their risk. And so one thing that I'm not gonna talk about today but I am interested in is um, can we identify risk factors before they even come to us? So there are studies from the 70s that say that the risk of death from infection is higher than the risk of death from you know, heart attacks and cancer. Um, And so I think there probably is some sort of genetic component to this that um, I'm not gonna go into today. But what I will talk about is um, risk factors that are identified in triage, things like vital signs, other medical conditions, mental status and perfusion, and then things that we can identify later in the ED, um, both traditional labs as well as novel biomarkers. All right, so we, we first came to say, would an electronic alert help, help? And as I said before, initially we were pretty skeptical of putting an electronic alert in place because we were worried about alert fatigue. And so when we first implemented all of our sepsis programs, they were all based on clinician judgment. So we basically would decide, does this patient need to be treated on the protocol or not? Um, And so what what we found, sorry, um, was that patients who were treated on our sepsis pathway actually did better than patients who weren't. So they had shorter hospital length of stay, they had shorter ICU length of stay, and they had less organ dysfunction at at 48 hours. Um, And so we knew that it was important that putting patients on this pathway was helping us. Um, And we also knew that we were missing some patients, and so we had um, a really nice collaboration between the ED and the ICU from the beginning, where the ICU developed a screening program as well, and so we kind of established this definition of a missed patient, which is someone who was in the ICU for severe sepsis or septic shock, so they had organ dysfunction within 24 hours of the ED, but they weren't treated on our sepsis pathway. And we knew, we found out that when we kind of tracked those patients over time, that we were missing about 18 to 20% of them and that those patients had more organ dysfunction than the patients we were identifying on the pathway. So we said, okay, we can do better, can we do better than this? And maybe it's time to start thinking about an electronic alert. But before we put it in prospectively, we decided we wanted to kind of study one to see how it would have performed and if it would have helped us to catch those patients that we clinically missed. Um, And so we took, we were part of the initial um, American Academy of Pediatrics septic shock collaborative who had this kind of paper-based tool that was developed um, at Texas and Utah, and we took that paper-based tool and we applied it using our sepsis registry to a year and a half worth of patients with fever. And we compared kind of what we had done clinically, which was not not an alert, we had just done our bedside judgment versus applying this alert retrospectively. Um, And what we found was that we knew we were missing about 18% of patients, so 72% sensitive was our bedside judgment, although highly specific. And the alert found almost all the patients that we had missed clinically, although not all of them. Um, And I think, so the combination of this data plus our knowledge that the patients that we were missing clinically were doing worse, we said, okay, now we think it's time um, to implement a live alert. So this is what our alert looks like. We built it in Epic. Um, And what we really tried to do is kind of balance that alert fatigue concept versus finding finding the patients that we want to find. And so the alert goes off for either tachycardia or hypertension is the first stage of the alert. And we use um, MPUs cutoffs for this and that was just because at the time of the implementation, um, things that were, at, that were above Q's cutoffs were read in our electronic medical record, and so we wanted to be consistent across the hospital. And so if the patient has either tachycardia or hypotension, this alert flags, um, and it basically asks the triage nurse, is there a fever or a sign, other sign of infection? And we knew it was important to do, to not require there to be fever, because um, in our initial fever work, we knew that a lot of patients with sepsis don't have fever in RED. So if the answer is no, so their heart rate is high because they broke their leg, or you know they have asthma, or some other thing, you would say no, and it will silence the alert. And if you say yes, I'm worried about infection in the patient, um, then you're asked to answer two other questions. Uh, one is about cap refill time, which is kind of how we measure perfusion, and one is about an existing high-risk condition, which you can see here. Um, and then there also is a question about mental status that's answered for every patient in the ED, and the nurse's answer to that question gets fed into the logic of this in the background. So if you have to have either, so you have to have abnormal vital signs plus something else abnormal. So either abnormal perfusion or abnormal mental status or a high-risk condition. And if you have any of those things, then um, this prompts what we call a sepsis huddle. Um, And this means that the attending physician um, is called to the bedside of the patient and decides, does this patient need our sepsis protocol, yes or no, Um, then they they answer this question. Um, What they kind of do in that huddle process is is one of our active areas of interest. Um, For the first several years of the alert, it's been in place now for three years. This is still a a kind of gestalt decision that the attending makes at the bedside, but we are in the the process of kind of scripting this more. Uh, The other important thing to know is that that an an attending can call a sepsis huddle even if the alert doesn't fire. Um, And so there are patients that we put on our protocol outside of this alert. Um, So in terms of how often it goes off, so uh, we see about 95,000 patients a year in the ED And the first stage goes off in about 15% of patients. So that means that 85% of the patients that come to the ED never alert for sepsis, which we were pretty happy with. Um, And of those, um, about 1% of them, or 7% of those go on to a sepsis huddle, so 1% of the entire population. So the attending physician goes to the bedside of about 1,000 patients a year. Um, Of those, so when we go to the bedside, um, we activate the sepsis pathway about 25% of the time. We are incredibly pathway happy in the ED at CHOP, and so we have lots of other pathways that um, help to get prompt antibiotics to patients who need them. So, you know, patients, oncology patients with a central line, sickle cell patients, young infants. And so, one bonus to this work was that we were able to get an attending to the bedside, even for for patients who didn't have sepsis, and we could get them their antibiotics faster as well. Um, And so, for over about 60% of patients, they had some sort of intervention by the team at the bedside. Um, in terms of how the alert performs, oops, sorry. Um, so the alert itself is 86% sensitive, so not perfect. Um, but the alert in combination with the physician judgment, meaning that if we take all the patients that the alert found and then add them to the patients that we kind of identified at the bedside of, oh, that patient needs a sepsis pathway, then we're very close to, 90, close to perfect, 99%. Um, the specificity is actually not bad. Um, and you can see the remainder of the test characteristics here. Um, Positive predictive value in sepsis recognition is incredibly challenging. So if you look at other published studies, they're generally in the single digits. So we are pretty happy, even though it's not ideal, with a 25% um, positive predictive value. Um, And then I think the money shot really is this. And so we've been kind of tracking our missed patients since 2012. Um, At the beginning, we were in this kind of 15 to 20% uh, range of missed patients. And since we put the alert live, we've been um, averaging around 5%. So not perfect but better than we were um, and it's been sustainable for for several years now. So in terms of what we're planning to do next with this, we are implementing it currently at one of our community sites in New Jersey um, and the state of Pennsylvania is interested in trialing it um, in several community hospitals because we would love to see how it performs in kind of a less um, complex patient setting. Um, There are validations going on at academic sites um, and then in the hospital, so as part of the Ipso collaborative, we are looking to build a screening tool outside of the ED. Um, the tool is, is similar to the, um, in structure to the ED tool, but not exactly the same, and that one is going to be piloted on inpatient units um, starting this month. All right, so if we think beyond vital signs, so what happens, you know, the, the alert is not perfect, right? Um, and can we, can we advance this with using laboratory studies? Um, So we just thought to do some predictive modeling for organ dysfunction in children with suspected sepsis. Um, And this was a project done by Hannah Gu, who was a medical student um, who did her scholarly project with me, along with um, Luke Keel, who's a biostatistician. And we wanted to say, can we build a model to identify severe sepsis in the first three hospital days among patients presenting to the ED with suspected sepsis? So we did a prospective cohort study over um, almost two, or just over two years. We used the first year as a training set and the second year as a validation set in just our single center ED. And we used that sepsis registry that I mentioned before, um, which is based in our electronic health record. Um, So we looked at patients who were 57 days to less than 18 years of age who were treated with our sepsis protocol or order set in the ED, or those missed patients, so patients Um, who had severe sepsis requiring ICU care within 24 hours of their ED arrival. Uh, We excluded patients who were transferred from outside hospitals or who had a cause for shock that was unrelated to sepsis, and this was um, by consensus review by two chart reviewers. um, And you can see those examples. Um, Our outcome was severe sepsis or septic shock in the first three hospital days, defined by these international consensus definitions that you can see here, and this was determined by a medical record review. Um, And so you basically either have to have cardiovascular dysfunction or two other organ dysfunctions. We chose our candidate predictors a priori. So I think one of the advantages of doing predictive machine learning, predictive modeling, is that you don't have to have a priori predictors, but I think to make this kind of a doable project for a medical student, we decided to choose um, choose some things for our first go at this. Um, So we included some demographic factors, um, vital signs, and we kind of used dichotomous cutoffs based on cues. Um, and then some candidate lab values, as well as treatment um, factors. So we did some basic statistics, and then um, we used a machine learning technique called gradient-boosted machines, which I'll tell you about in a little bit. Um, so This is considered an ensemble machine learning method that allows you to both account for interaction between terms and also helps you to account for missing data. And then we also did some standard testing to report how the model performs, including kind of sensitivity specificity, as well as the accuracy of the model's predictions. All right, so when I asked the statistician to send me a gentle introduction to machine learning techniques, he sent me this article. Um, <laughs> so that is um, highly intimidating to me and hopefully to most of you. Um, so this is, my, this is my baby version. Um, so I think machine learning, um, there's lots of different ways to think about it. But in general, you take a whole bunch of data as a training set. You can do it either supervised, where you kind of tell it what you're looking for, or unsupervi- unsupervised, where you just hand it a whole bunch of data and tell it to extract certain features. And then there's lots of different um, algorithms that you can use that ultimately will either kind of classify your your stuff into different groups or develop a model that tries to predict something that's gonna happen in the future. So machine learning is very hot these days and so there's lots and lots of jobs out there. This certainly extends beyond medicine to, it's how Google works, it's how Amazon sends you all those things that tell you what you wanna buy um, and and all sorts of, um, it's really everywhere. Um, And so just in terms of thinking about the medical version, I think um, machine learning has become more and more um, incorporated into medical care, and I think we'll probably be the forefront of some precision-type techniques in medicine in our lifetimes, probably. Um, The first machine learning I'm aware of in emergency medicine was the PCARN head injury rule, um, which uh, if some of you are aware of, this is the Pediatric Emergency Medicine Applied Research Network who did a big study of 40,000 kids in the early 2000s, um, looking at who who does not need a head CT for um, mild traumatic brain injury. And they used CART, which is a recursive partitioning technique that's pretty simple. It's not like a black box um, kind of rule. And so it's a rule that you can actually follow the steps of and find the outcome, but nonetheless, it's a type of machine learning. Kind of the next level of these are something called ensemble techniques, so these are things like random forests and neural networks. Um, Neural networks is largely how Google works. Um, And these kind of add, they they take lots of different models and apply them at once, and then they average them together. Um, And then the boosting methods are kind of, um, at least according to the statisticians, are even the next level after this, where instead of averaging models together, they kind of build them sequentially, um, one upon the next. Um, I think you can think about it in similar to like a logistic regression where you're kind of adding your variables one at a time, except you're adding models instead of variables. All right, so so the method we used is this kind of gradient-based machine learning method. All right, but this is basic. This is not machine learning. So this is just who are the patients. Um, So you can see that um, the demographics between the training set and the validation set were similar. We had 372 patients in the training set and 278 in the validation set. Um, And that these are patients in general that are not previously healthy, Um, so they have about 70% of them had at least one comorbid condition. Um, In terms of their outcomes, again, we had a similar proportion that were admitted to the ICU. The ICU length of stay, hospital length of stay, and the prevalence of severe sepsis uh, were similar between the the derivation and validation groups. Um, And in terms of the model performance, so we definitely saw um, a decrease in its performance in the validation set, which is not surprising. Um, Our training set was 92% sensitive, um, 83% in the validation set. Um, Specificity again, um, 72 to 63%. Um, Positive predictive value is actually quite good. Um, And then you can see the rest of the characteristics here. Um, In terms of the proportion of correct predictions, um, 88% in the derivation set and 79% in the validation set. So the model doesn't quite give you the same thing as CART, it doesn't give you a tree to follow, but it does tell you kind of what are the what were the most important predictors in the model. Um, and these were the ones that came out as most important. So white count, um, procalcitonin, and then time to therapies. So I think what the, there are several limitations to this study. So probably the main one, or the two main ones. One is that um, we included severe sepsis at any time in the first three days. So really if a patient comes to the ED with organ dysfunction, they're gonna have organ dysfunction. And so um, patients with new organ dysfunction, so those ones who came looking well and then got really sick later, were, were rare. So they were a minority of the patients. Um, and so I think we really need multicenter numbers to be able to do that. And we are in the process of doing that study um, with PCARN. So they're, stay tuned for that data. Um, And then the other thing is that we kind of selected those predictors a priori, so we probably could have used richer data. We did vital signs um, with a set cutoff instead of allowing the machine to decide what are the best cutoffs. Um, So I think in the next, in the PCARN version, um, we'll we'll do a more kind of um, hypothesis agnostic rule. Um, Another downside to these rules is that they are very black box, right? So they predict very well, but at the end of the day, if you're the clinician at the bedside it's like do you trust in Google to tell you does this patient have sepsis or not without really understanding all the details of, of what the rule is doing, which maybe be in, the, in this day of kind of, you know, we, we trust our computers, maybe that's okay, um, but I think that will remain, remain to be seen when we get to implementing things like this in the future. All right, so I think in conclusion of this part that we were able to identify a model to identify severe sepsis in the first three days, um, and the next steps I kind of mentioned already. Um, the other thing is, you know, we, maybe we can build a model using only clinical data that we currently collect that will be good enough for clinicians to change their behavior at the bedside. but it's also possible that that model, that perfect model needs additional things like novel biomarkers. So, so the next um, part of this is thinking about can we do can we use novel biomarkers to predict to improve prediction? Um So I think this was really pioneered by Hector Wong in Cincinnati, who's an ICU physician in Cincinnati who's used uh, transcriptomics, or RNA expression profiling, to predict mortality in children who arrive at the ED, um, at, in the ICU, sorry, with septic shock. Um, and he certainly has identified um, unique patterns of RNA expression that are associated with poor outcome in the ICU. Um, and I think the, exci- the most exciting part about this is really, you know, can we, um, can we ultimately use that to tailor therapy? Certainly, there's lots of omics in the world, and I'm only going to focus on RNA expression profiling today, but I did allude to genomics, so I think it is interesting to think about genetic risk. Um, there's certainly a lot of interest in the microbiome lately and microbiome and sepsis in specific, um, specifically, um, and then I think um, there is also interest in bioenergetics and um, the mitochondria as well. So why do we think that omics are important in sepsis? Largely because it's complicated, right? So there's been countless failed clinical trials in adult sepsis if, over the last 50 years, probably because there's no such thing as sepsis. Um, sepsis is probably not one disease. There's lots of different categories we can put patients in. Some have more circulatory failure. Some have more of an immune paralysis or immune hyperactivation. Some patients have mitochondrial or bio- bioenergetic failure. And really, probably giving one medicine to all of them is n- never going to work. And so, and also probably finding one biomarker, a diagnostic biomarker, is also never going to work. And so, we need a way to look at multiple markers. And certainly, we can, you know, look at panels of things. Um, but really, I think this approach of of using using big data um, will help us find hopefully the categories that are most helpful. Um, And so this kind of led us to think about pathogen type. And so one of the areas that I think has gained the most traction in RNA expression profiling is can we use this to help us differentiate bacteria from viruses, right? And so we have all these kids with fever. We want to find the ones that are going to end up with hemodynamic compromise, but we also want to find the ones that are going to end up with bacterial infections, right? So they're all going to get broad-spectrum antibiotics, but we would like to be good stewards of antibiotics, and we'd like to give antibiotics to the ones that it's going to help and not give it to the ones or stop it early in the ones that have viral infection. Um, And so that was kind of our interest in using RNA to look not only at hemodynamics like Hector Wong has done, but also to look at pathogen type. Um, And so just for a brief primer on RNA expression profiling, and this is borrowed from um, the AAP, and this was um, from a description of another PCARN study um, that was looking at RNA expression profile in febrile infants that came out last fall. Um, But basically the idea is that you have a patient who gets infected with, with a pathogen, and instead of taking the blood and looking for the pathogen itself, you're looking at the immune response to the pathogen. So you can isolate RNA from whole blood, which is largely most of the RNA in there is from white blood cells, um, and you can look at the, at the pattern of, of gene expression across those white blood cells and look for patterns that are more associated with a viral infection or a bacterial infection. And so if you haven't seen these um, heat maps before, the way to look at them is kind of each, um, each column is a patient and each row is a gene. And so you can see you know 20,000 genes or some subset for each column. Um, and so that, that column is kind, is kind of their RNA expression profile. And so you can see that if you're looking at, um, you can classify patients into different subclasses just by looking at it um, to say, okay, this patient looks more like these patients, um, and you can categorize them that way. Um, And so I would love to say that in the next, you know, in my lifetime, we'll be able to do precision or personalized medicine in ED, um, where we can give the right medicine to the right patient at the right time using some combination of these kind of biomarker strategies as well as um, vital sign-based data. So there's been a lot of interest in the last five to 10 years looking using RNA expression profiling to identify the pathogen. So this is that PCARN study that I alluded to a moment ago. So we all know you know, young infants come to the ED with fever all the time. They have to get a lot of stuff, including an LP, which makes their parents very stressed. Um, and, we would, and we know that the vast majority of those patients don't have a bacterial infection. Um, and so we would love to be able to say, patient comes in the door, we do their RNA expression profile, they have a virus, and that we can kind of not do all of that Um, invasive stuff. I think we're probably still a ways from that, but this was an attempt to look at um, this this manuscript was from about 200 to 300 children with suspected infection in the ED, um, and they were able to identify patterns that were associated with more with viral or more with bacterial infections. Um, This is another group from Stanford who kind of did a meta-analysis looking at several different studies that tried to look at infection type um, across different populations of people. And, so, and they really found um, quite robustly that, they, that you could differentiate a bacterial from a viral infection using these kind of integrated diagnostic methods. Um, so they have this 11-gene sepsis metascore that they use um, to identify bacterial versus viral infection. Um, and if you look at this, with these, these are kind of the ROC curves from this meta-analysis. So if you focus on the, on the right, this is their validation set. Um, and so just to remind folks of ROC curves, you're kind of looking, it balances sensitivity and one minus specificity. And the best, the best performers are kind of in that upper left, upper left corner. Um, and so you can see, if you think about ROC curves for, for various things that we use to try to identify risk for bacterial infection, white blood cell count, procalcitonin, CRP, all of those things have area under, areas under the ROC curve in the 70 to 85% range. None of them really exceed 90%. Um, and if you take, again, from this meta-analysis, their summary area under the curve was 91%. So I think compelling to say that, you know, certainly maybe, maybe this is a, a helpful way to go. Again, these, these are multiple studies. None of them, it was, not one, it was not a prospective study. They looked backwards at a bunch of different, different studies, but nonetheless, I think compelling. Uh, so we were interested in saying, so if we, take a, if we take these patients that we're kind of treating for sepsis and the ED, um, can we use their RNA expression profiles to predict both kind of their disease severity and also their pathogen? Um, so it's basically the same cohort of patients that we're using for these other projects, Um, so children 57 days to 18 years of age um, with suspected sepsis in the ED, so we define this as use of our order set. Um, We we collected RNA from whole blood at the time of initiating the sepsis protocol. Um, We also collected um, DNA from their residual CBCs and a serum sample that I'm not going to talk about today, and then we electronically captured the clinical variables using the same strategy that that we used to build our sepsis registry. An important thing to know about this is that all the, all the other laboratory testing was at the discretion of the treating team. So, you know, we have kind of a list of labs that are pre checked in the order set, but not everyone always follows them. Um, so, everyone had a blood culture, but all the other, you know, procalcitonin, lactate, et cetera, were at the discretion of the team, and viral testing, importantly, was at the discretion of the team. All right, so we isolated RNA from whole blood. We have a core facility that um, sequenced and analyzed them using this um, gene chip from Affymetrix. Um, and then we performed analysis in batches. We did standard quality control procedures to ensure high quality RNA. Um, We did look for batch effect, which is a thing in RNA expression data, which we did not see. And then really the the basic analysis is a supervised clustering analysis, looking at patients with known bacterial versus viral infection. Uh, Because we're looking at 20,000 genes at once, you have to do adjustments for multiple comparisons, and so Benjamini Hochberg is the method that we used. Um, and then there's a couple of different ways you can look at the gene outputs, and I'll show you examples of each of these. Um, we also looked at potential covariates, did an unsupervised analysis, and then did some predictive modeling using random forests. All right. So the exposure in our study was the RNA expression profile. Um, the outcome was pathogen type. And so we defined a definite bacterial infection as an organism isolated from sterile body fluid. Um, a viral infection was a positive viral serology, or viral PCR. A co-infection was both of those. And then we had this category of suspected bacterial infection, meaning that the team diagnosed the patient with a bacterial infection, but there was no organism isolated, and they got treated with a full course of antibiotics. So a pneumonia on chest x-ray, an osteomyelitis on MRI, um, or if there was an organism isolated from a non-sterile site, so like a tracheitis. We considered age, sex, race, um, comorbid conditions, and ICU admission as covariates. And then we also um, considered the labs you see there for predictive modeling. In terms of enrollment, so it's interesting to study sepsis in the ED and that um, all of this stuff has to happen in a very timely way. So patients are treated with antibiotics and fluids and multiple IVs, all in like a 10 to 15 minute time frame. And so we were able to get um, exemption from consent from the IRB for this study. Um, and then we would approach patients later to ask if we could keep their sample that we had, dr- that we had drawn. Um, we had about 75% um, patient's consent to the study. Uh, we got RNA from 167 subjects. And of those, 134 of those were high quality RNA. And interestingly, the vast majority of those who had unevaluable RNA were from patients with neutropenia, which is not surprising. Um, So in terms of our demographics, um, pretty similar to the um, patient subset we looked at for the predictive modeling. These patients actually were from earlier than the predictive modeling patients. Um, So about 56% of them had a chronic hair condition, um, and about half of them went to the ICU. In terms of which comorbid conditions they had, you can see they kind of run the gamut. Um, And in terms of the pathogen type, uh, so 28 patients had a bacterial infection, 38 had a viral infection, 5 had both, um, and 34 had no source identified. We also had RNA from 12 12 healthy controls. Um, So this is a volcano plot, so this is one way of looking at RNA data. So along the x-axis is the fold change in RNA expression, and along the y-axis is the p-value. And so what you're looking for are genes that have a large fold change expression as well as a significant p-value. And so these ones in red um, had a fold, at least a two-fold change in gene expression, um, and then you can see on the right there are some over here as well. Um, and interestingly, the vast majority of the genes that we identified um, were actually underexpressed in patients with bacterial inf- infection compared to those with viral infection. So then when we take the, those patients only with confirmed bacterial or viral infections and try to sort them. Um, you can see that not perfect, but pretty well, the viral patients kind of cluster together with similar patterns of RNA expression. And this is looking at genes that were significant to the ten to p to the ten to the minus fourth level. And again, just to remind you, each column is a patient, each row is a gene. And then when you throw everybody in, so not just the viral and bacterial patients, but you throw in those co-infections, the patients um, that had possible bacterial infections. You can see that still the viral patients do cluster together, um, although not perfectly. So in terms of what genes we found, again, remember that the genes are largely overexpressed in patients with viral infection compared to bacterial. So most of the things we found have to do with viral immunity. So a lot of things with interferon signaling um, was by far the most common. You can look for your favorite gene on the list. Um, And then you can also kind of input these gene lists into databases that are available online looking for common um, signaling pathways that they are a part of. Um, And again, you can see that this has to do with viral immunity and interferon signaling. Um, We then tried to do predictive modeling, so random forest, which is another one of those machine learning methods. Um, And we unfortunately didn't have enough to kind of do a separate derivation and validation set, so we did an internal cross-validation, which is similar to bootstrapping. Um, based on those patients with confirmed viral and confirmed bacterial infection. Um, So in these patients, so this is the ROC curve from our data. Um, Using the clinical data alone, which the variables you can see down at the bottom there, um, actually performed quite poorly in this subset of patients. Um, But when you added the RNA um, signatures on top of that, we got an area under the curve of 0.9, which is very similar actually to what Sweeney published in his meta-analysis. So we are encouraged by this, although obviously need to do this in a bigger sample. in terms of limitations of this, so obviously it's a single center study. I mentioned we need to do future validation. All the lab testing, including viral testing, was at the discretion of the team, and I could only afford to do one time point, so I think there's interest to say that these profiles change over time because we know that patients come to the ED. Some come after an hour of fever, some come after several days, and so I think the stability of the signature is, is interesting. We did also look at hemodynamics, so do we see different signatures in patients who ultimately ended up on vasoactive agents in ICU versus those who didn't? Um, And we didn't really actually see a good signal in um, looking at vasoactive outcomes. Uh, We think partly because the the prevalence of patients who needed high ICU care was low, um, so we didn't have enough sick patients to look at it. And we think probably that the pathogen signal is so strong that it maybe is overwhelming um, signals from hemodynamics. And so what we would love to do is a big multi-center study where we can look at kind of pathogen by hemodynamics at the same time um, and see if we can further categorize patients that way. Um, So that is kind of the end of the RNA piece. And then I just wanted to talk a little bit about um, building kind of infrastructure across the hospital. So we were excited um, this fall to release the pediatric sepsis program, um, which is kind of our center. Um, And this is in collaboration with two um, colleagues from the ICU that have been doing um, this work with me from the beginning. Um, And so we were um, funded by the Department of Pediatrics has a chair's initiative grant every few years where you can kind of apply to build a new program. What we would like this to be is kind of an umbrella structure where we can encompass a lot of the quality work that's going on in the hospital as well as research so each of us have kind of our own independent research programs to improve clinical care for patients with sepsis and as well as to develop um, novel patient education and um, provider education methods. Um, and so this is a, leadership of, the, of this program is from the ED, the ICU, um, as well as the NICU is involved. Um, we have three projects that we're doing in our first year and we're kind of hoping that this will be, this will be ongoing. Um, so we are um, part of this program is that we are taking our sepsis screening project and um, applying it to virtua which is our community hospital in new jersey to kind of see how this performs um, in a more (coughs) community-based setting Um, secondly is we're developing a follow-up care clinic for patients with um, who survive sepsis from the icu so we're currently um, i think there's increasing uh, realization that patients you know are doing better in terms of mortality which is great but there that there is morbidity after pediatric sepsis and um, there's a big trial um, run by jerry zimmerman out of seattle that should be publishing soon um, showing that there is um, there are deficits a lot of them neurocognitively based so some students have um, kind of more attention and learning problems in school um, and so we're currently in the midst of a needs assessment with both families as well as primary care providers in the CHOP network to kind of find out what needs are for um, survivors of sepsis. And then we'll kind of planning to build a follow-up program starting next year um, to address some of those needs. And then the third project um, is, is doing some case adjudication. So for any of you guys here who are participating in the Ipso effort, you know that, you know, we kind of try to identify patients with sepsis based on a who needs to be treated in the ED, right? So we, we want the patient, or on the floor, we want the patients we're okay if we put some patients in that cohort who didn't actually have sepsis because we want to make sure we catch everybody. When we're looking for outcomes, we want—we don't want to have you know 75 out of 100 patients in there who didn't ultimately have septic shock. And so we have these kind of broad quality cohorts that we've been following um, at CHOP, but we know that upwards of 75% of them actually didn't have sepsis even though we treated it for, treated them for it. And so we have um, one of our ICU nurses who's involved in our virtual PICU um, program is, is actually going through each of those charts by hand and adjudicating who has true sepsis so that we can track our morbidity and mortality outcomes in that kind of subset of patients that truly has sepsis. And we're hoping to build that build kind of, once we do it by hand, to build an automated way to extract that adjudicated cohort from the electronic health record so that it's less painful in the future. Um, and then we are also part of several multi-center efforts, so um, as Dr. Laurich mentioned, we are, we are participants in the Ipso Collaborative, and we, <coughs> did do, um, we did the AAP Collaborative, which was kind of the predecessor of the Ipso Collaborative. We participate in PCARN and have several projects, so currently are do, working on that clinical prediction model, um, and then are also developing programs with them around um, novel biomarkers as well as treatment trials, largely based on IV fluids. Um, And then we are involved in um, Pennsylvania has um, a big sepsis program largely focused around adults, and we're kind of trying to get kids a seat at that that table. Um, So I just wanted to acknowledge my many mentors and collaborators, and I'm happy to take questions.